All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41, and we are continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. And this morning we come to read of the final three hours of Christ's crucifixion. In the text before us, we will read Mark's account of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the climax of redemptive history. Everything has pointed to and waited for this moment as our Lord hangs on the tree. Our Lord suffers and gives his life as an atonement to save sinners from the wrath of God. This was planned from eternity and covenanted within God himself. It was promised first to Adam and Eve after the fall in Genesis 3. It was promised to God's people through the prophets of the Old Testament. It was pictured throughout the Old Testament and its offices and its systems and its laws and its sacrifices. Everything has worked for and toward this moment and now it's here. Our Lord hangs upon a cross making atonement for sinners. In this text, our salvation is revealed. The Lamb of God is sacrificed. God visits the cross in divine justice. The Son of God cries out in God-forsakenness. The Savior gives up His Spirit willingly. The curtain of the temple is torn in two. And a Roman soldier confesses that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. There's glory here. I've been saying that for a long time. There's glory here. This text reveals to us the darkness of the cross. You'll see that. It, It reveals that our Lord suffered the wrath of a holy and just God in the place of sinners. But through the darkness, the light of our salvation shines forth in the bleeding wounds of our Savior. Brothers and sisters, all of Scripture is holy. All of Scripture is holy, but as we read the passage before us, we are keenly aware that we are standing on holy ground. As you sit under the ministry of the Word this morning, I ask you to allow yourself to be awestruck at the wonder of the cross of Christ. Please, as much as it's within you, pray silently for yourselves even now. As much as it's within you to make this happen, hear these truths with fresh ears this morning. And allow the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to wash over you once again. And by God's grace, we will leave here marveling and rejoicing in the finished work of our Savior. May God bless us this morning as he speaks to us through his word. Now, with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have come to you in need. We, we always come to you in need. We are needy sinners. And so, God, we, we ask you for help to understand and believe and profit from your word this morning. We, we can't accomplish this in ourselves. You, God, you must help us. And we know that you promised to bless us with yourself as we humble ourselves before your word. And so we ask that you would do what you have promised to do. Keep your promise to us and bless us. Show us your son. Show us our Lord, Jesus Christ. Show us your glory displayed in his cross. Comfort us with his suffering. Give us life by his death. Sanctify us as we look to him in faith. Glorify yourself in us today by the mighty working of your Holy Spirit through your holy word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go ahead and dive into our text. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now the sixth hour, according to Jewish time reckoning, was noon. Right? Their clock started at 6 a.m. And Mark is telling us then that from noon until 3 p.m., a thick, heavy darkness came over the whole land. How far it went, we don't know, but it must have at least covered Jerusalem and the surrounding region where this was all occurring. Darkness covers the whole land. I want you to know this was not a solar eclipse. How do we know that? Passover happened during a full moon. It's on a, it's on a lunar calendar, and a solar eclipse can only happen during a new moon. More than that, an eclipse, as we remember from a few years ago, an eclipse only lasts for a few minutes. This darkness, Mark says, lasted for three hours. Three hours. You've never seen this. We've never seen anything like this. And furthermore, it is noon. That caught my attention this past week as I was studying. It's noon. The sun is at its highest point in the sky. It is as bright as it can be as our Lord hangs on his cross, and then the sky simply goes dark. The sky goes dark throughout the whole land. What is this? This is a divine sign. God, God has clearly done this. Why? How do we know that? Because this is not natural. God is doing something within the created order that is meant to signal something to those present. God is, God is doing something. Right, The suffering and impending death of Jesus is significant. God wants us and everyone who was present that day to see that, that this is no normal death. Jesus is not some common criminal on a Roman cross. There's something much bigger going on here, and we would do well to pay attention to the darkness that has descended upon the land. You know, darkness is symbolic in the Old Testament. Even, even when it's literally dark, it often signifies something. And it's symbolic of God's wrath. Let me give you some examples from the Old Testament. The ninth plague that God sent upon Egypt was darkness over the land. Exodus 10.22 says, And there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt 
three days. Here it's dark for three hours. I think that's significant. Darkness is a plague. It's a judgment of God. In prophetic literature, in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, God is declaring judgment upon Babylon. And he says, behold, the day of the Lord. That's a day of judgment, by the way, the day of the Lord. And there are many days of the Lord in the Old Testament that point forward to the ultimate end times day of the Lord when Christ returns. But here he says, behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Darkness is emblematic of God's wrath. In Amos chapter 5 verse 20, the day of the Lord is again being spoken of. And Amos says, is not the day of the Lord darkness? And not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Elsewhere, Amos says, and I'm paraphrasing now. He says, the day of the Lord is a day of darkness as the morning of a sun. We see this going on here. Jesus himself spoke of the wrath of God in hell as a place of outer darkness. Darkness is a sign of the judgment of God. And sometimes Literal darkness itself was a judgment of God. And taking all of this together, we see then that darkness descending upon the land as our Lord hangs upon the cross is a signal from God to everyone as to what is happening to Jesus in this moment. What's going on? He's being judged. All oh, that should make you a little uncomfortable, though it is a central truth. The sinless Son of God is being Judged. Judged by God. God has turned his face away from Jesus, so to speak. The light of God's grace and kindness has turned away from him. Contrary to popular belief, and I don't, I don't want to uh, be rude to anyone, but contrary to popular belief, the darkness did not signify the absence of God. God is omnipresent. If God is not somewhere, then that place does not exist. Darkness is not a symbol of his absence. Rather, it signifies his presence. But it is a presence of judgment. It's a presence of wrath. It is God's holy and terrifying presence as judge. In the words of John MacArthur, God has visited Calvary. God has descended upon the cross to execute judgment and justice on his only begotten son. But why? Why? Why is God doing this? Why is God doing this to his sinless son? Jesus is the one whom God declared, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's pleased with Christ. So why then has God visited his perfect sinless son in wrath? Here's your answer. Most of you know this, but hear it again. Here's the answer. Because he who knew no sin has been made sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, has been made sin for us. God's wrath descends upon the cross because the Lamb of God has had the sins of all who ever did or ever would believe on him placed squarely upon his shoulders. Judgment has descended because the righteous one has been made guilty for the sins of his people and the sin must be paid for. Oh, hear this. 
hear this again. God is a holy God. He is a righteous hater of sin. He is the righteous judge who, as we will read in a moment, will by no means clear the guilty. Sin incurs a debt of judgment and punishment and damnation from God. And God is holy. That means he will not look the other way. He won't look the other way. For him to look the other way on sin would be for him to compromise his own nature. Our God will not compromise his holiness. He can't. Why do I say that? Because he's unchangeable. If he compromises his holiness, he has changed his own character, and he is the unchangeably holy God. And so there must be a payment for sin. Justice must be served. Divine justice must have its vengeance. You know, the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God avenges sin. There is divine vengeance. And Jesus has come, as he says in Mark 10, 45, Jesus has come to give his life as a ransom for many. He has come to suffer this divine justice on behalf of those who would believe on him. And now the payment is being made. Justice is being served. Divine punishment is being poured out. The wrath of God is being borne by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sky runs black. You know, the Apostle Paul in, in, in what is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible, explains the work of Christ at the cross most clearly in Romans chapter 3. And there we read this, verses 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here the apostle Paul tells us that Jesus was put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now by his blood refers to his cross work where he suffered and bled and died. And Paul says that his cross, what Christ did on the cross, was a propitiatory work. That's a word we don't use often, but it's a word we need to use it's a propitiatory work. Let me explain this. To propitiate means to satisfy wrath. It means to make satisfaction in order to appease. To propitiate is to make peace with God by means of a sacrifice that takes away God's wrath. And here the apostle tells us Jesus is the propitiation for sin. He's the one who turns away wrath. By his cross, he's the one who makes peace. That is, at the cross, Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God in place of sinners and in doing so takes it away for those who trust in him. He bore the justice that was due to sinners. He made a full payment for sin that takes away the wrath of God for those who believe. You remember elsewhere in Mark's gospel, Jesus spoke of a cup that he must drink. You remember that? There's a cup that he must drink and there's a baptism with which he must be baptized. It was the cup of God's wrath. It was a baptism of wrath. And Paul tells us, oh, please hear me and marvel. Paul tells us that at the cross, Jesus took the cup and drank it down to its dregs. The psalm says that there is a cup that God has mixed 
and it's full of his wrath, and the wicked must drink every drop of it. And here Paul says, Christ has drank the cup. We can put it this way, and I love this. God has exhausted his wrath on Christ. And because Christ has suffered it in our place, oh, hear me, those of you who trust in Christ, there is no wrath left for you. There just simply isn't because he is the propitiation for sinners. And because God's justice has been satisfied, God now shows mercy. Having justice satisfied, God now shows mercy to those who come to him through faith in Jesus. You could say this, God's mercy was purchased at the cross. Mercy for us. Now what is mercy? Mercy is not giving you what you deserve. Mercy is you not getting what you should get. And because Christ has taken the punishment of God, we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get mercy. Our God, catch this, we're going we're gonna to go into this in just a second. Our God can justly be merciful to those who believe because of what Christ did on the cross. Because the darkness of God's wrath descended upon Christ, the light of his mercy can shine brightly on those who believe. And now because of what Jesus has done at the cross, Paul goes on to say this, Romans 3, 25 and 26. This, this propitiation that was offered by Christ, this sacrifice that takes away sin, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I love that phrase. Paul says that God is both just and the justifier. How is he just? He's just because he did not turn his he did not turn away his justice and holiness. Did he? Someone paid for sin. Jesus paid for sin. God kept his justice intact. He kept his righteous character intact at the cross. But because of this work, he can also be the justifier. What is the justifier? The justifier is the one who declares sinners to be righteous in his sight. God can be just. A payment for sin has been made. And also the one who looks at sinners who trust in Christ and says, you are righteous in my sight in Christ. It has been famously and rightly said that at the cross, justice and mercy kiss one another. Amen. Amen. Let me say this another way from another text. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, we read this. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That presents us with a problem, doesn't it? Have you ever read that and wondered how does that work? God will by no means clear the guilty, but he is a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. How is this possible? The cross. The cross is how this is possible. 
Even under the old covenant, the cross of Christ is in view. Have you considered this? When God forgave you, you who believe, when God forgave you of your sin, did he clear you as being guilty? No, he did not. You are still guilty. You really committed the sin. God did not look the other way and act as if you did not sin. He did not clear the guilty. God doesn't sweep our sin under the rug and act like it didn't happen. He didn't wink at our sin and give us a pass. He didn't forget his justice in order to show us mercy and forgive us. He can't do that. But I'll tell you what he did do. He laid your sin upon Christ and judged him at the cross. He didn't clear the guilty. A payment still was made. God at the cross condemned sin and exacted punishment and vengeance on Christ in our place. And though we say Christ took away our guilt, what we're talking about is God granted amnesty to sinners. Oh, you did it. And Christ paid for it. As we sang last week, the slave hath sinned and the son hath suffered. And this is how God forgives and remains just. At the cross, God saved us from himself, by himself, for himself. He saved us from his judgment and wrath through his son so that we would be forgiven and brought into fellowship with him forever. The three hours of darkness happened because this was all happening to our Lord Jesus at the cross. And God wants us to see it. Why? Because as we confessed earlier, it was happening for us and for our salvation. And as Jesus is making atonement for sinners, we hear at the ninth hour, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This had to be a bone-chilling thing to hear. I heard one, one preacher says maybe it's recorded first in Aramaic because it was so ingrained into the minds of the disciples who heard it. Here's a man crying out in agony and despair, and his Aramaic words were just stuck in their head for the rest of their lives. Could be. But this had to be a bone-chilling thing to hear. He screams from the cross. He didn't whimper. He says he uttered or cried with a loud voice. He cries out in agony and despair. From the depths of his human soul, he says, My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is, as we're going to read later, he's quoting from Psalm 22. This is a psalm of David that, like the other psalms, finds its fulfillment and fullest expression in Jesus Christ. The psalm speaks of a righteous sufferer, one who had done no wrong but is suffering horribly, one who had done no wrong himself but has been abandoned by God. And Jesus is applying this psalm to himself because it is about him. It is about him particularly the opening lines of God-forsakenness. Now, the whole psalm applies to him. Read it. We're going we're to read it later together. But read it, and you'll see the whole thing applies to him. But we'll come back to that again later. But I want you to see this. In his human nature, Jesus is utterly abandoned by God. God has hidden the light of his face entirely from Christ, and nobody alive has ever endured this. No one has ever endured this. Consider this, all mercy, all comfort, all goodness, all blessedness comes from God alone, 
right? Every good and every perfect gift comes from God. And none of it is for Jesus at the cross. He is forsaken. All goodness that comes from God is gone from him in this moment. Not an ounce of kindness is shown. Let, let me put this as clearly as I can. This phrase has always shocked me a little bit to, to, to ponder. At the cross, God was merciless to Jesus. That's why he cries out, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Again, nobody alive has ever experienced this. All of us, to some extent, experience mercy and kindness and grace from God every moment of our lives, even in our worst moments. Even the most wicked person on earth receives some measure of goodness from God, but not Jesus at the cross. He is God forsaken. Isaiah 59 two says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And in his work of atonement, Jesus is experiencing the most extreme version of this. Your sins have separated you from God, but they're not his sins. They're the sins of his people that he says are his at the cross. Again, he's made sin for us. He who had only ever lived for the glory of God is now forsaken by God because he has become sin. He who has only ever had perfect fellowship with God is now cut off from that fellowship. Even the breath that God allows to come into his lungs is but to continue the torment of divine punishment. Have you ever considered that? Not even his continued living is a mercy. It's, a further, it's to further the means of the execution of divine justice. Again, he is God forsaken. Brothers and sisters, hear me very clearly. This is hell. This is hell. God forsakenness is hell. Now, bear with me for a moment. I personally think that the descriptions of hell given in scripture are metaphorical. And metaphors always point to something greater than themselves. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to lower the horrors of hell. I'm trying to heighten them so that you can see them rightly. I say my wife is a rose. Why? Well, she's more beautiful than a rose. I'm using metaphorical language. She, she's greater than the metaphor. That's how they work. Metaphors always point to something greater. The Bible mentions eternal burning, a bottomless pit, being cast away from God, being cast into outer darkness, a lake of fire, weeping and gnashing of teeth. All of these are emblematic of being forsaken by God. And being God forsaken is worse than these descriptors. How? I don't know. I don't want to know. But it must be worse because this is what our Savior is enduring at the cross. He's not enduring literal fire or any of those things. He is enduring God forsakenness. And that tells me that that is what hell is because he takes the wrath of God for us. Again, don't misunderstand me. Hell is a real place where unsaved people really go and they really go there for all eternity. It just must be worse than the descriptors given in scripture. To be truly, really, and fully forsaken by God is so horrible, dreadful, painful, and awful that we cannot fathom it. And that's why the metaphors are used in scripture. And that's why we rightly use them in conversation about the horrors of hell. We don't have anything worse that we can think of, but hell is actually worse. I say all of this to reiterate a point to you that I already made. 
in his cry of forsakenness, we are reminded that Jesus is truly absorbing the punishment due to sinners. In a very real way, Jesus is suffering hell on the cross. How exactly this worked, I don't pretend to know. But this is the teaching of the word of God. He suffers and he feels the guilt and the condemnation of God as if he himself had committed the sin. He's making atonement. And this is why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's at this point that some of the bystanders come into play again. Verses 35 and 36 is very briefly. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now they either misunderstood his cry Eloi, sounds like Elijah in Aramaic. They either misunderstood his cry or they desired to mock him some more. They knew he was saying, my God. And they said, oh, maybe it's Elijah. And they're desiring to mock him. And so they give him a drink of vinegar wine to make him more alert. And with this drink, our Lord's mouth is wetted. And his throat is cleared that he might cry aloud a final time before giving up his spirit. And that leads us to verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus cried out before dying. So we have to look to Luke chapter 23 verse 46 and John chapter 19 verse 30 to hear what he said. And in Luke we read, Christ cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in John we read, it is finished. Now, we don't know what order that Jesus spoke these words, uh, but we know that these two sentences are his last words from the cross. Now, it's just a personal opinion. I think his final words are in John 19.30. It is finished. It is finished. But even if I'm wrong, it doesn't matter. What matters is that he said them both. That's actually what matters. But what I want to focus on now is the cry of Christ in John 19.30. It is finished. What we translate into three words is actually one word in the original. And to paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, in one drop of language, there is an eternity of glory. Amen. He cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. But what was finished? His suffering was finished. Every prophecy about his suffering and death was fulfilled. His work of redemption that he had come to do was finished. He had accomplished the will of God. He had achieved the purpose for which he came into the world. Atonement had been made. God's wrath had been satisfied. The propitiation that saves sinners had been made. It is finished. You know, this, this, I get very excited about this. You know, we, we have found instances in ancient documents where the word that Jesus cried out was also used. And they are transactional documents. They're essentially receipts. And the word means paid in full. The transaction is over is what it means. It is finished, or as some translations say, it is accomplished. The deal is done. The, oh, hear this and apply this. The owing party has paid and the one owed is satisfied with the payment. 
the one who owed has paid. The, the one who was owed is satisfied. He's good with it. It is finished. Our Lord says, sin is paid for. It's done. It's over. Everything is accomplished. God is satisfied in what I have done for you. God is satisfied. This is the most glorious thing that I can declare to you. And this is why I jumped over to John to preach this. The most glorious thing that I can tell you is it is finished. For those who trust in Christ, for those who look to him in faith, it is finished. There is nothing more to be done. Your salvation is finished. There's nothing you can do to add to his work. Oh, please hear me. There are so many false gospels in the world that say you must supplement what Christ has done. If you needed to add to his work in any way, he could not have rightly said, it is finished. But he said it. He said it. And he is no liar. He is the sinless son of God. If it were not finished, he would have said, well, it's mainly finished, but there are some things that you need to do to really finish the job. Blasphemy. That's not what he says. He says it is finished because it is. For all who come to him in faith, rest assured, you are saved. There are no good works that you need to do to be saved. There is no atonement that you need to make. There is no satisfaction you need to render to God. Jesus has done it all. You need only to trust that he has accomplished your salvation. And he will save you. Charles Spurgeon once said, Take comfort in this. The redemption of Christ's church is perfected. Not another penny need be paid for her full release. Those whom he bought with blood are forever clear of all charges paid for to the utmost. All those overwhelming debts that would have sunk us to the lowest hell have been discharged and they who believe in Christ will appear with boldness before the throne of God itself. Amen. The debt has been discharged because Christ has paid it. He cried, it is finished, and then he willingly gave up his spirit and died. And now we come to the results of his death. Mark records that something amazing, another divine sign happened as Jesus died on the cross. Verse 38 and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That is this huge, thick, I, I read a, an ancient commentary. A guy said it was about the thickness of the veil was about your hand's breadth. That is, a, that is a huge curtain. And it was the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the holy place in the temple. And it was torn in two from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was God's throne room in the temple. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to sit. It's where the cherubim were. And God seated, he, he, he was enthroned above the cherubim. That's where God's presence would come and meet with his people. His peculiar presence under the Old Covenant was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. The curtain then, I want you to see this. The curtain then was as close as a person could ordinarily get to God's presence. But even at that, only priests could get that close. And the only time a human being could get closer to God's presence was once a year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go behind the curtain by himself and sprinkle blood to cover the sins of the people. 
But now the curtain is torn in two. Matthew 27 tells us that there was a great earthquake at the time as well. So the ground shakes when Christ dies and the curtain from top to bottom is ripped. What does all this mean? Well, no human being can cause an earthquake and no human was up on a ladder in the holy place to tear the curtain at the moment that Jesus died. That means that this is an act of God. God tore this curtain. God reached down from heaven, as it were, and ripped the curtain in two. And he did this to signify some things to us, to signify the results of Christ's work at the cross. Now, there are many things. I added up. There are seven things that I could point out to you from, from this instance, but what this signifies. But I'm only going to point out two of them this morning. The first, there are no more sacrifices ever to be offered again in that temple. Ever. Ever. The curtain where you sprinkled the blood, or rather the curtain that you went behind to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, ripped. God has torn the curtain because he has departed from that place. Remember Mark 13 in the Olivet Discourse. God no longer desired the blood of animals to be shed to cover sin. He no longer would be present in the Holy of Holies as the high priest sprinkled blood before him. Why? Because Jesus Christ has offered the full and final sacrifice that takes away sin. The Jewish sacrificial system was dead the moment that Jesus died. No more sacrifices for sin were required. They were obsolete that moment. More than that, and this is no stretch, to offer another sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins was now blasphemy in the eyes of God. It is finished, remember? It is finished. The great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, has offered the final sacrifice for sin. Let me read some passages from the book of Hebrews that really emphasize this. As, as the author of Hebrews explains, chapter 7, verse 27, he, Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. One sacrifice for all. Again, we read chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, you see a, a repeating theme, priests, high priest, of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He went once and secured an eternal redemption. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 4. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Real quick, what, why did he sit down? Because it's done. You sit down when the work is finished. He offered himself and then he sat down. Why? The last words of this verse. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, those of you who trust in him, 
have been perfected in the eyes of God. You have been made clean in the eyes of God. Even before his resurrection from the dead, in the tearing of the curtain, God put his amen to Jesus' words, it is finished. No more sacrifices for sin. And eternal redemption belongs to those who believe. In the tearing of the curtain, I want you to see a sure sign that God has accepted the sacrifice of Christ in your place. The lamb, rather the blood of the lamb of God has been sprinkled in the holy of holies and you are forgiven. A second thing, the work of Christ has granted us access to God. Direct access to God through Christ belongs to us. The curtain was a barrier. It represented the separation of God from sinners, but now this curtain is gone. The, or rather, it's torn. The barrier is gone. There is now a path of entrance into the presence of God. The Lord Jesus has torn down, oh, hear me, this, this is so good to hear. He has torn down every barrier that once kept us from God. All of it. All of it. Our sin that kept us from fellowship with God has been taken away. The sin that left us open and liable to the judgment and wrath and condemnation of God has been taken away. And we actually have fellowship with him now. We have fellowship with God now. You didn't prior to this. You did not. But catch this. It's only through Christ that you have this. That's the point. Christ's death results in the, in the tearing of the curtain. It's only through his mediation that you have communion and friendship and access to God. But for those who believe, it is ours. We are now children of the God that we were once enemies of. We are now, like Israel, his special possession. He is ours and we are his. We can now call him our father. We can now cry out to him. We can approach his throne with boldness and not have to worry that he will turn us away because he never will. Why? Because Christ has made entrance into his presence for us. What is it? The Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 6, says that Jesus Christ, as a forerunner, has went back into the Holy of Holies. What's a forerunner do? A forerunner goes before the rest of everybody. The forerunner goes first because people are coming behind him. He went into the presence of God with his sacrifice that we might follow behind him and have communion with God. Oh, please hear me. God actually desires to be near to you. Because of what Christ has done, God can be near to you and you have freedom of access. Because Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can now say, God is my God and he has accepted me in Christ. You have fellowship with him. The curtain has been torn and God speaks a glorious word to us in it. And now we come to the confession of the centurion. Verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. I personally think that this Roman soldier was converted at the cross. He confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, did he fully understand everything? No. No, the, the disciples didn't either. You're going to tell me Peter wasn't a believer at this time? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Peter was a Christian. Do, 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 does his knowledge need supplemented after the resurrection? Absolutely. Does that mean you couldn't be a believer prior to the resurrection of Christ? Nonsense. Nonsense. I think that this man was converted. His confession is true and real, just as Peter's, but it's still needing more that will be given later in the resurrection of Christ. 
consider this with me. Who knows what all this soldier had seen and heard? He, he could have been privy to much information. After all, he was, maybe you didn't know this, he was the leader of the execution squad for Jesus. He's a centurion. He's the, the leader of a hundred soldiers. The centurion is present at the cross. Why? He's overseeing the crucifixions. The men who are under his charge are doing them, and he's watching it and making sure that it all goes according to what Pilate has commanded. He's the leader of the execution squad. Maybe he had heard of what Jesus taught and did in Jerusalem. He's stationed there. No, no doubt he had heard the accusation of the Jews against Jesus, that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, that Jesus claimed to be the King of the Jews. It was written above Jesus' head, the King of the Jews. He had seen how Pilate had declared Jesus to be innocent of all charges. He had witnessed how Jesus did not curse or rail at those crucifying him, but had accepted his death, and that is not normal for crucifixion victims. He had seen how Jesus ministered to one of the men crucified with him and told him, today you will be with me in paradise. He had seen how Jesus had prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had seen the sky go black for three hours. He had seen how Catch this, this is amazing. Jesus did not slowly die as crucifixion victims did, but he had energy enough to cry out loudly and then immediately give up his spirit. That is not possible for crucifixion victims who are choking to death. They're usually so weakened that they pass out on the cross and then die. But Jesus cries out with a full breath of, breath of air and then gives up his spirit and dies. He sees that. I think that's what Mark means when he says, when he saw in this way that he died. He knows this is not normal. This man gave up his life. It wasn't taken from him. More than that, he, he had heard how Jesus entrusted himself to God at the cross before giving up his spirit. He felt the earthquake at the death of Christ. It's in light of all of these things that a profound realization by God's grace occurs to this Roman soldier. Truly, this was the Son of God. This was the Son of God. Again, no doubt this man needs much teaching just like the apostles did, but I see no reason to doubt that he came to faith in Christ as he saw him die. And for whatever it's worth to you, church tradition even says that this man was converted. He saw that there was something different in Jesus, that there was something different in his death, that he didn't deserve to die, but he died willingly. There was something significant that had occurred. His death had meaning. God was saying something here. Jesus was not an ordinary man. He must be the son of God. And God converted him. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see some things from this. Just two things. First, the worst of sinners can have hope in Christ. This man was the leader of, his execu of Christ's execution squad. And God sovereignly worked faith in this man's heart and opened his eyes to see that Jesus is the Son of God. Truly, God has mercy on whomever he wills. Truly, nobody is beyond the grace of God. Salvation is for all who will confess faith, rather confess in faith that Jesus is the Son of God. There is hope for the worst of the worst. His death is powerful to save all who will believe no matter what they've done. And the second thing to see, this is how it always is, is it not? That faith is born at the cross. That it's once we see Christ crucified for sinners that God causes us to behold significance in his death. 
that God causes us to see something different in him and that's what he uses to bring us to Christ. This man just experienced it literally. But the cross of Christ is the birthplace of faith because it's at the cross that you see that he is the son of God. And him being the son of God means that he is the one who by the will of God has died as the ransom for sinners. Our Lord Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save the lost and the confession of the centurion shows that he has done it. Now a final thing, and I know I've been up here for a while, but I, I, knew, I knew this was going to be long. I want you guys to see this last thing. And it's not even in this text exactly. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 22. In verse 34 of our passage in Mark, Jesus spoke the first line of Psalm 22. And he meant it. He was being forsaken by God in that moment. But I can't help to think that Jesus meant more than just to express his anguish of soul. I think that there is more to his quotation of Psalm 22 than that. By quoting the opening verse of the psalm, I believe that Jesus is making reference to the whole psalm. Why do I say that? Well, the opening lines of psalms were their titles. This psalm would have been called, My God, My God, Why Have You Forsaken Me? So again, I'm not taking away, Jesus really was quoting it and saying, I am being God forsaken, and I think he was also referring to the entire contents of this psalm. Now let me ask you this, if I look at you and say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, what do you think? That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. And if you have enough time to actually think on it and you know that hymn well, you'll probably think of the rest of the verses, won't you? Right? You know hundreds of songs, whether or not you realize it. You actually know hundreds of songs. At the cross, I think Jesus intended to bring the entirety of Psalm 22, uh, the entirety of it to the mind of everyone who heard him. That's not a stretch. Okay, the Psalms were the hymnal of the Jews. They heard them often. They sung them often. And Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm that they would have been familiar with, especially the religious rulers who were there that day. Psalm 22 is a psalm of suffering and lament. If you read, you can, you can read that the, the righteous sufferer in the first half is describing exactly what happened to Jesus at the cross. The Messiah here speaks of being forsaken by God, mocked by everybody, told that God doesn't love him, his hands and feet are pierced, he is stripped naked, he is thirsty, he is metaphorically surrounded by wild animals that threaten his life. He is in distress and anguish of soul. That is Christ on the cross. But then there's a turnaround in the psalm. Everyone knows the first half. A lot of people don't pay attention to the second half. In the second part of verse 21 in Psalm 22, we read this. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. What is that? God has rescued his Messiah. God rescued him from despair and death. God rescued him from all his enemies. Brothers and sisters, I believe that in verse 34 of Mark's text, Jesus is expressing faith as well as God forsakenness. He believes that his God forsakenness, while it is real, will not be the end for him. Remember, he says, my God, my God. 
Why have you forsaken me? God is still his God. Jesus is full of faith that God will not let him decay in the grave. His suffering and death will not be the end, and it wasn't. On the third day, God raised him from the dead in glory. But there's something else that I want you to see, and it's toward the end of Psalm 22. I want to point out three verses. It's a celebration of the work of the Messiah. In verse 27, we read this. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And in verses 30 and 31, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. These are prophecies of what the Messiah's suffering would result in. The families of the world would come to know God. Generations would come and proclaim that God has done it. Done what? Brought the world to know himself through his Messiah. The suffering of the Messiah would bring life, would bring salvation to the world. The centurion may have been the first fruits of this prophecy, and I actually think that that's what's going on here. A Gentile came to confess Christ. Why? Because the Messiah has suffered, and many, many more will follow until Jesus has dominion over the whole world. Brothers and sisters, he has done it. The psalm is being fulfilled. Now, as I come to a close, let me leave you with this. Rejoice. Rejoice. He has done it. Your Savior has done it. It is finished. The new covenant that saves sinners has been inaugurated in the blood of Christ. The wrath of God passes over you who believe because it first rested upon Christ at the cross. The temple has been, or rather the temple curtain has been torn. The son of God has died and been raised and you are saved in him. May God grant each one of us joy in our hearts as we behold the crucified Christ and look forward to the day when the families of all nations shall serve him. Amen. Let's pray. God, you have done it. You have done it through your son. And we praise you. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you that he bore the wrath that we deserve. We thank you that darkness descended upon him, that the light of your grace might shine upon us. We thank you that he cried out in God forsakenness, that we might cry out, Abba, Father, knowing that we are accepted by you. We thank you that you tore the curtain, that we might have access to you. We thank you, God, that you have opened our eyes like the centurion to see the crucified Christ and say, truly, this is the Son of God. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of any here who do not know you, and let them see what you have granted us to see. Let them look to Christ and live. And God, we long for the day, and we ask that you would fulfill the rest of this psalm and grant that all the families of the earth would come and bow down before the Messiah and say, truly, God has done it through him. Keep your promises, Lord. We ask in Christ's name, amen.